Hello, and welcome back to Texas Tech Health Check from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center. I'm your host, Melissa Whitfield. We want you to get healthy and stay healthy with help from evidence-based advice from our physicians, healthcare providers, and researchers. We often associate PTSD with crowds or loud sounds, such as fireworks, but those aren't the only situations which might trigger someone with PTSD, especially around the holidays. Natalie Scanlon, assistant professor and clinical psychologist in the TTUHSE School of Medicine's Department of Psychiatry, is back on our podcast, helping us understand PTSD and what might be triggering. She explains the differences between PTSD and anxiety, and she gives us tips to help a loved one if they become triggered. Dr. Scanlon, welcome back to our podcast. It's great to have you again. Thank you. Glad to be here. And congratulations on having the top episode of the year. Thank you. Also, very exciting. Can you remind us again a little bit what you do here at the Health Sciences Center? Yes. So I am an assistant professor and clinical psychologist here with the Health Sciences Center Department of Psychiatry. Well, again, welcome. It's that time of year when we have fireworks and loud noises. That might be triggering for some people with PTSD. Can you explain to us what is PTSD? Yes, I think it's a good question. PTSD is a term that's used far and wide. So diagnostically, PTSD stands for post-traumatic stress disorder. And as a psychologist in the field of psychology and psychiatry, we really think about PTSD as having five characteristics, if you will. So one... A person with PTSD is ex- has experienced a traumatic event, which is usually defined as a life-threatening event, something that was quite violating in some way, so sexual violence, and can also be from witnessing other people going through a life-threatening event. The other characteristics of PTSD are negative changes in one's thinking and mood, increased arousal and hypervigilance, so kind of being on edge avoidance of things that might remind the person of what happened, and then re-experiencing symptoms. So oftentimes people with PTSD have nightmares or flashbacks. So PTSD as a diagnosis and as a condition is, is really quite significant and can be life-altering for people. What's the difference between PTSD and anxiety? The difference between PTSD and anxiety, at least in the professional realm, is that they actually fall in two different camps of disorders. So in the DSM, which is the Bible for psychologists and psychiatrists, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, anxiety falls under the camp of anxiety disorders. No surprises there. PTSD falls under the camp of trauma and stressor-related disorders. So you've got PTSD in the trauma camp. And then you also have diagnoses like prolonged grief disorder. And oftentimes PTSD and grief go hand in hand. Prolonged grief disorder is a new disorder in the DSM. So if people haven't heard of it, it is new, but they fall in in different categories and they have similarities, you know, certainly in PTSD with that characteristic of negative changes in thought and mood that I mentioned. A lot of people with PTSD do feel depressed, they do feel anxious and on edge, hypervigilant, kind of hyper aroused. But 
you really have to meet those other criteria in order to have PTSD. Somebody with anxiety, you know, if it's generalized anxiety disorder or social anxiety, they're going to worry, they're going to have fears about things, but they're kind of specific to generalized worries, social fears versus something traumatic that happened to them. Can PTSD be found in children? Absolutely. Yeah, I want to talk about some important data we have in terms of adverse childhood events and trauma in children. So there was a hallmark study done by Kaiser Permanente, big medical group, and others out in California in the the late 90s, I believe, that looked at what we call adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. And ACEs are any potentially traumatic event that happens in childhood. So it could be abuse that a child experiences or abuse that they witness in the home, Um, children who are exposed to homelessness or substance use or family members with mental illness, a whole host of things can be considered ACEs in childhood, right? So this study found that when they surveyed adults across 25 states in America, over half of the adults reported experiencing at least one ACE in childhood, over half. And then about one in six reported four or more ACEs. So four or more adverse childhood experiences in childhood, which was tremendous. It was tremendous for us to know this and to be aware of this. And they also found that for people who have ACEs, they go on to have many chronic health problems, mental illness, substance use, you name it. I mean, even linking some of these things to chronic heart disease, lung disease, changes in brain structure, really significant stuff. And so I say all of that about ACEs for kids to say that we think of ACEs as certainly very difficult experiences and potentially traumatizing experiences for kids to go through. And not all kids will go on to develop a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. So if you've experienced a trauma, it's not a guarantee that you will go on to develop PTSD. It just depends on your risk factors and your protective factors. So what we do know in terms of prevalence rates, to kind of answer your question more directly, Melissa, we have a lot of data on adults and adolescents. So in terms of national lifetime prevalence for adults, we we think about 7% of adults in the United States have had PTSD at some point in their life. And then we think about anywhere anywhere between 5 and 8% of teenagers have had PTSD at some point in their life. So those numbers might seem low, but again, that doesn't capture people who have experienced trauma more broadly. And then the final thing I'll say about kiddos is that our, our prevalence rates for kids are hard to determine because a lot of people will argue that the criteria for PTSD are inadequate for children, that children inherently have a different presentation. PTSD looks differently in kids than it looks in teenagers or in adults. And so there are a lot of advocates for changing the criteria of PTSD to capture behavioral problems, aggression, um, some of those just different behaviors and presentations that, that kids will have. Kids won't necessarily say, hey, I had this trauma and now I'm really sad about it. They'll show you in other ways. So some arguments there for kind of improving the criteria and 
maybe not always thinking of kids as aggressive, giving them, you know, a, a conduct disorder diagnosis, but thinking about things from a trauma lens. Well, the holidays are supposed to be a happy time, but we know that they can be triggering, especially for those in recovery. We had an episode on that last last week. Does it also affect those with PTSD? I think it can, absolutely. I think the holidays historically and currently are a hard time for people in recovery, for, for people who are in grief. You know, holidays are typically a time that we spend with loved ones, and so when we lose loved ones, it's very salient around the holidays that there there isn't a seat at the table for that person. And I think PTSD can be connected to grief, right? They're, they're different because with PTSD, when I think of the two of them going together, I think of people who have witnessed a loved one passing away. That could be in the hospital. That could be in a car accident. When you witness somebody passing away and then you're grieving the loss of them, that's how they can go hand in hand. For a lot of people who don't witness the passing of somebody, they're still in grief, but maybe not so much the PTSD part. And so all that to say, you know, the holidays, I think, can be a very joyous time. They can be a very hard time. They can be a time that's that's hard for people with PTSD, depending on the nature of the loss and what could be triggering for them. How can we better plan our time together in order to decrease the chances of triggering someone who has PTSD? This is a good question. And I think it's important to note that it's often hard to know what the triggers are for somebody with PTSD. I talked on the last podcast episode I did around Halloween that, you know, haunted houses, Nightmare on 19th, those things can be fun. They can be triggering of, of violent or dangerous situations for people. And so I think it's always hard to know what the triggers are. I, I think if you know that somebody is in grief or in loss or has had a traumatic event and so might be struggling with that, I think your best bet is to open a conversation about that before you get into the holiday season. So maybe not open a conversation about it at the Christmas dinner table, but a conversation beforehand about, hey, we'd love you to come to this event. We also recognize that you're having a hard time with some things. What can we do or not do to, to help you feel comfortable? Um, I think that would go a long way. What can we do if a loved one is triggered? Yeah, I, I've seen this personally and professionally. As a psychologist who treats PTSD, I've seen this happen in the therapy room. And as somebody whose family members were at the Boston Marathon, the year of the bombings, I've seen the sequelae of that, right? And, and a loved one being in a situation that was triggering of what happened in Boston. When you're in that situation, if you are the the friend, the support person, number one, just realize that when somebody gets triggered, they're going to go into fight, flight, or freeze. And so you're going to see them do one of those three things. And they're doing that because the primitive part of their brain has taken over and they're just trying to protect themselves from what they think is a dangerous situation, right? They think that the trauma is happening all over again. If you can remember that and if you can kind of stay in a rational, um, sort of even-keeled mode, my advice would be um, be open to them. So approach them with openness and open body posture, offer to help. You might need to offer to ground them back to reality. You know, hey, 
my name is Natalie. I'm here for you. You know, we're in the restaurant, whatever it might be, just try to ground them back to reality. Use non-judgment, you know, approach them with compassion and care and know that they're going through a hard time. Um, And then make sure to regulate your own emotions. It can be very scary to see a loved one uh, who's triggered and in that space. And so you might need to use some breathing. And if they see you using that breathing, that may prompt them to use their own breathing. Uh, You could put on some relaxing music. You could get out some essential oils. But use, use your own skills to stay regulated so that you can lend that helping hand to them. I I guess um, sometimes it's hard not to take it personally. You want to have control of the situation and Mm. you just don't know how to help and you forget that it's not about you, the the friend. Mm -hmm. And and I think that those breathing exercises are are really helpful and come in handy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I think in our society... uh, my supervisees hear me talk about this all the time. Uh, in our society, we think that experiencing distressing emotions is a bad thing, that we should never experience distressing emotions. And while I don't think it's it's something we should promote, you know, being in distress over PTSD, I do think it happens. And so if we can get comfortable with that in a way and normalize that, in some ways your body and your brain are doing what they've always been programmed to do. They think that you're back in that hard situation and they're going into fight, flight, or freeze. And as the person witnessing that, that's not a bad thing. Uh, That may be something that they need help with, but it's not your fault. What are some treatments for PTSD? Yeah, great question. There are lots of treatments out there. I'll name a couple of the what we call empirically supported treatments or the the treatments that the research really backs as being helpful for PTSD. So a couple of those, Melissa, are trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. So if you hear the term TFCBT, a lot of people know CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. The TF just means it's trauma-focused. So you're going to do a lot of work on your thoughts, your feelings, your behaviors, and how those are connected for kiddos and for teenagers who have experienced trauma. Um Another type of treatment, a treatment that I practice, is prolonged exposure for PTSD. So it's it's rooted in cognitive behavioral therapy. And this is going to sound kind of weird to our listeners, but the, the goal is to actually expose patients to the trauma that they experienced. So whether that's uh, in vivo, real life exposure to things that remind them of the trauma or imaginal exposure, thinking back to what happened. The goal of it is to give the patient control over the narrative rather than the trauma controlling the narrative. And so oftentimes I'll give an example in session when patients ask me, why would you ever make me do this? If I were to tell you right now, don't think about a white polar bear, what are you likely to think about? Think of a white polar bear. Absolutely, right? Um, And that's what happens with PTSD. We try very hard not to think about it. Just don't think about it. Don't think about it. And inevitably, we think about it. That just, that avoidance doesn't work. So that prolonged exposure can can really help. It's hard. It's hard work. You have to really, as a patient, decide, am I ready to do this and embark upon this journey? But very effective. A couple of others, some people, some of our listeners might hear about EMDR, which stands for Eye Movement and Desensitization Reprocessing. EMDR shares a lot of components with the prolonged exposure therapy that I just mentioned. The addition is 
the therapist or the psychologist will use some finger movements or some tapping exercises. And the goal there is to almost kind of make new pathways in the brain. So the trauma lives in a different sort of place in the brain. It gets processed differently. And, and that sort of eye movement can help with that reprocessing. Um, another one I would mention is cognitive processing therapy. It's, it's similar to the ones I've mentioned, but does a lot more work with the narrative and, and the thoughts about the trauma for a person. I think it's all about rewriting the narrative in a way that doesn't make the trauma okay by any means, but it does make it a part of the person's story as opposed to controlling their life moving forward. I will mention, this might be a little unconventional, but I will mention psychedelics. Some of our listeners might have, might have heard about psilocybin or ketamine. These are kind of coming on the market not quite in an FDA-approved way, but a lot of organizations are seeking some data about how psychedelics could be used in a safe way to assist with trauma work. A 30,000-foot view explanation about why the heck would we do this is some people believe that psychedelics have a way of sort of lowering one's defense mechanisms so that the trauma processing can happen. When you're sober and you walk into a therapy session, a lot of your defenses are still going to be up. And so I would say more research to come on that. If anybody's considering that, please do that in a very safe way with organizations that have professionals on board where you feel very comfortable with the setting because you are vulnerable when you embark upon something like that. So I'd encourage our listeners to really research that and, and maybe wait till we've got some more data out about it. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I, I talked about this on the last episode. I, I would say for all of our listeners and, and for everybody out there to please be trauma informed. You know, I just talked about some trauma specific treatments for PTSD. You don't have to be a therapist or a psychologist to help somebody with PTSD. And I learned this in a pretty powerful way when I had the unfortunate opportunity to go to Uvalde this past spring and help with some of the aftermath of the school violence there. And I will disclose that we were sitting in the Family Resiliency Center and, and we were talking, our team was talking, and I'd made a mistake about something. And so I used the term, oh, shoot, in that moment. And then I looked around the room and I saw parents of children who were lost to the school shooting, family members, friends. And I thought, gosh, if I was a parent of a child who had just been killed by gun violence and I heard somebody say, oh, shoot, that would be really invalidating for me. So to be trauma-informed means we think about the world from not just our perspective, but from other people's perspectives, even if we haven't gone through the same trauma. And so we use words matter. So we use words with caution. We choose our words wisely. We choose our actions wisely. We don't make jokes about rape or suicide or things that people have actually gone through. And so I would really advocate for that and just please ask our listeners, ask all of us to take a moment to think about that and to be trauma-informed. That's great advice. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Texas Tech Health Check. Make sure to subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Always seek immediate medical advice from your physician or healthcare provider for questions regarding your health or medical condition. Texas Tech Health Check is brought to you by Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center and produced by Tierra Castillo, Susana Cisneros, Mark Hendricks, and me, Melissa Whitfield.